Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Hey, welcome to Eastlake. Glad that you're here. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series called Through Peasant Eyes today. Thank you for those of you watching online or catching this on replay. We're glad that you would take time out of your week to do so. For those of you in person, uh, you picked a great day to come check us out for the very first time, if this is your first time, uh, because of the four-week series that we're starting today. Um, the idea behind the series uh, is simply uh, this. It struck me uh, one of the things I remember most about, or of something that stands out vividly, or a visceral memory of uh, the pandemic times was during like a uh, peak of caution when like nobody was allowed to do pretty much anything, right? Um, we are all at home kind of doing things and then watching as protests were taking place and uh, trying to, I, I remember myself trying to process through us not being allowed to uh, do church in any sort of way. And then, but these, but this is okay. And then, and the people who were adamant about this were somehow accepting of this. And, and then when you asked, and the, the question became, why was this acceptable at this time? Um, it was because, well, this is, listen, like something tragic has really taken place. And there, this is a processing of, of ways to do this. And, it, and it, some, for some of it, I'm just being raw and honest for me, it just didn't It hit differently. It just felt like it felt like the rubric uh, for why things were uh, acceptable was switched on us. And, and but then I, you know, begin to hear kind of the stories uh, about some of this. And I realized um, that I needed to kind of look at it and see see what was taking place behind the scenes, try and see things through through their eyes, through somebody else's eyes, which is really hard uh, for a lot of us to do in a lot of different situations. Um, uh, it plays out too for, for me. My wife tells me that I'm impossible to play strategy games with. Um, and so not taboo necessarily, but um, like games where like there's some sort of thinking and there's moves involved and you got to kind of piece things together because um, inevitably whoever I'm supposed to be partnered with will do something. And I'll be like, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing it like that? And and it just, it, I, I, I don't let it go. I'm, I'm, so I'm difficult to play with in that way. I don't see things through their eyes um, because a lot of times, um, and this is true for all of us, we see things from our own perspective and our own bias and we all approach things from our way of doing. And there's some, some certain assumptions that I operate with that maybe perhaps you operate with as well. I just listed three of them for myself and you might be able to identify with one, two, or maybe all three of these things. Uh, but my assumption oftentimes going through life is that I have all of the information I need to make an educated response, um, that I feel like I'm, I'm pretty well-bred. I like to keep up with the news. I like to have conversations about actual real life things. And so I feel like I have all of the information I need to be able to make a, 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 a qualified response. Number two uh, is my ability to sort information is efficient and, and generally accurate. And I think that you probably feel like that, um, that you feel like I'm, I'm smart enough to be able to kind of see things and piece, you know, connect the dots in a certain way to be like, this is what makes the most sense. Um, and it's efficient, accurate in that way. Uh, and then oftentimes a, a final assumption that I often have is that we have the same goals uh, or end game in mind and that those that might not be true, right? Uh, whenever I'm playing a, a, a game where it's like I have a partner, um, I have an end goal and their goal might be different than my end goal. And they're of course wrong, but we'll keep playing and hopefully they'll figure this out. So 
Inevitably, some of those, oper- those assumptions are in operation uh, in, in my life. And when it comes to uh, that, then what transpires that is I can feel completely and very right about something and be utterly wrong about it at the same time. Uh, and and that, that can be true for you. And, and the sooner that you realize that, the probably the better off in life that you'll be and, and the easier you'll be to live with. But I can feel right and still be completely or at least partially uh, wrong in this. And when it comes to reading scripture, when it comes to reading this thing called the Bible, um, we are constantly uh, in doing something called interpretation of it. It was, it's, it was written in a language that's not our language. It's an interpretation of an interpretation. It was written to an audience. It was written from somebody who lived in a completely different world than us. And, and all of that, anytime that you and I read the Bible, no matter what, we are always interpreting the Bible. There's a fancy term for it uh, that uh, scholars come up with called hermeneutics, the uh, art of interpreting the biblical text, hermeneutics, interpreting the biblical text. And the concept behind it, one of the baseline assumptions with this is that you always read the text with a predetermined bias and agenda. There's no possible way that you and I engage in anything of this nature with a completely blank slate. We're always reading into it. We have modern assumptions. We have modern ways of doing things, and that's fine. And and, and uh, uh, the problem that can come with that is that I'm very good at reading into things, things that I want to be there. And maybe that's that's true for you too. But I can read something, and 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 somebody can be like, "This is what I think it means," and I'll be like, "Well, this is what it means to me." And and it can be those can be two very different kind of takes on these. And and oftentimes I'm inclined to read what I think is beneficial to me and helps me in my cause of, you know, building my ego and whatever else the, the case may be. I found this out most. Uh, like perceptively or most most uh, tacitly in the past couple of years during the pandemic, I also downloaded what's called Robinhood. Some of you guys have this on your uh, you know this phone in your app, and I got into stock trading. Like I've always done, you know, we've done retirement, whatever. But like finding out specific companies and throwing like twenty dollars, and it's amazing how invested you are when you have twenty dollars in AMC. It's weird how that works. Uh, like the emotions and how often it, honestly, I had to kind of get out and delete the app from my phone because it was just constant checking. And like my emotions would rise and fall based on like $5, you know what I mean? Or like 10 cents within the stock. And so that's not good. That's not healthy. And so, but I, I began, and I had a friend who also, his name's Ryan, who was really into this with me. And so we'd, we'd be texting each other these stories, these articles from Barron's or Wall Street Journal or whatever. Like, did you hear about this stock? They got this thing coming out and whatever. And I, I noticed early on that I would send things to him reading what I wanted to read into this. Dude, can you believe this? Like this stock is going to be such and such. Uh, this, uh, they, they're, they're predicting this guy who works for this company and is getting paid for them and is on their marketing team is telling us that they're going to be profitable by 2025. And Ryan would be like, dude, dude that guy's not going to be employed by that company in 2025, right? And I'd be like, bro, bro. Ignore the balance sheets. Balance sheets are for losers, bro. Come on, you know what I mean? Like all this kind of stuff. And uh, and so I I, I found myself uh, realizing I, I tend to see things that aren't there and wanting things to be true that are, are going to help me. And uh, oftentimes, good things like good news articles would come of stocks that I already own, right? Because I'm trying to like feed this, anyways. I tend to interpret meaning into things that perhaps the original author of whatever uh, could not and did not uh, mean it to have. And we do this too. If you've ever if you've ever been going through something in life and you're like, you know, you're praying, you're doing your, your thing, you're, you're asking God, God, show me direction. I just need to know, is this supposed to be something I do or don't do? Should I marry him? Should I marry her? What do I do? And you've done this game. You're like, just tell me now. 
now, right? And you look at this verse and you're like, Paul, what I hear you saying is that I should propose to my girlfriend. And Paul would be like, this is a letter to a church. What are you talking about, man, right? Like we, we do this and we, we can, I mean, I know that that's an extreme version of it, but in a sense, this is not uh, all, all the way outside of our behavior to do this. Um, and so hermeneutics is the art, the art of trying to interpret the Bible correctly, to have a strategy towards it, to recognize my personal bias, to try and dismantle perhaps uh, some of the things that I would approach it with a Western kind of uh, American mindset view and try and look at things through the first century audience, the first century author. What would they know that I don't know? What would they see that I don't see? What would they feel that I don't feel? Um, and and maybe have that begin to shape kind of how we live. And un, a truly unbiased approach is a naive endeavor, but there is some work to be done. And um, so we wanted to look at it. I want to look at a few things uh, through peasant eyes, through through the audience uh, that, that would have a first century peasant, which is a lot of times who, what was the makeup of Jesus's audience when he would do the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't, he would go to temples and he would have certain ways of talking there, but then he would also have these, draw these crowds of people that would have been far more accessible and far more, um, yeah, just uh, uh, like honestly peasant uh, in nature, a mindset, a hand to, to mouth sort of mindset, a paycheck to paycheck sort of thing, even even less so than that. It would just be a, a daily, when he says daily bread, we don't even know what it's like to live and to really pray. God, give us our daily bread, right? You're like, you have never lived daily bread-ish, I'm, I'm telling you, but they did. Um, so how did how would they have seen these things? And specifically what, what I want to do is for the next couple of weeks, and I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to go. I have it scheduled for four, but I really liked it, what I wrote and, and the direction. So it might go for six. So we'll see. Um, I want to look at the parables in the gospel of Luke. I could have picked parables in general, but we're just going to try and lay some boundaries on it. Luke uh, was is the third gospel of the fourth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories about the person and teaching of Jesus. And in it, Jesus takes some time to be able to say things that we categorize as parables. Oftentimes they're fictitious stories. Um, the first century audience would have heard them. And in, in our parlance or whatever, we would say, once upon a time, there was a man who had three sons. Once upon a, upon a time, there was a man who had a field, right? We would know immediately that these aren't true, but there's a story. There's some sort of a moral to the story or sort of an end game in and of itself. So we're going to look at those parables or like four to six different parables. We're going to try and do it through um, peasant eyes, uh, through through kind of tearing down our construct to see what they were feeling and, and what they would have noticed that we do not notice. And so uh, why are we doing parables? Um, two reasons uh, that I could kind of break down. One is there's a commonality factor to them, that Jesus had an uncommon ability to connect with the common man, that most people in his position uh, struggled with that. As uh, as it continues, even in today, you've watched um, TED Talk videos of people who have lots of letters after their names and have lo lots of uh, academia knowledge behind them, and it's really hard to listen to them, and the examples that they use are, are just different, and they're like, well, we struggle with the uh, Dionysian theory or, or you know, Carl Jungian, Jungian theory, and you're like, I don't know what that means, so, you know, whatever. Um, and when he would do his parables, the commonality piece would be that he would use examples that were uh, like felt among these people. Like he would say, you ever had a sheep and you lost it? And people would be like, I, I had that last week. I have a sheep and I lost it, right? He would never say, you ever had a summer home that's really hard to maintain? He'd be like, no, I don't know what that feels like. You know what I mean? Like two people in the back are like, oh yeah, it sucks. You get your mail at two different places and the bills are everywhere. Ugh, ugh, summer homes suck, right? That's, that's, that's not what he's saying. He, he's, always, he's always things like, you ever lost a coin? You ever lost a sheep? Uh, you ever you ever had a, a relationship with a family member go sideways? 
And, and everybody in that moment, you didn't have to be religious. You didn't have to be like super involved in that. They'd be like, um, okay, yeah, I, I can see this. So there's commonality factors uh, involved in this. And what's interesting, what I love about it, and, and I, I've said this many times in, in looking at, at Jesus and what was so appealing to him and why he was seemingly an irresistible character uh, when it comes to the gospel stories. People who are nothing like Jesus like Jesus. And that's so uncommon in our world uh, because people, who, people tend to gravitate towards people who are like them and away from people who are not like them. That has nothing to do with religious boundaries. It takes place within religious boundaries. But in, when, when, it, when you read the Gospels of Jesus, he comes from this rabbinic, he, he's, he's, he's got all these titles and these, these, the, the adoration of, of uh, both people who have knowledge and, and you know, educational stuff. And then without it, people who are nothing like him liked him. He dined with sinners and tax collectors and they invited him to his home and they showed up at the parties. Like that's, that's crazy. That's, that's not normal. It's not natural. So there's a commonality factor that I think uh, is great about the parables that is characteristic of the ministry of Jesus as a whole. So that's why I want to focus on parables. And number two uh, is when you read the parables, there's a call to action factor involved in these. They're not just transfers of information. They're fables. They're fictitious stories. But there's a reason that he's telling them because he's trying to put people into a position to make a decision about what to do uh, with what they've just heard. Oftentimes, he would illustrate it in terms of there was a person A and a person B, and at the end of the story, which person are you going to be, right? What are you going to do with this? Indifference was not an option. You couldn't just take, you know, hear Jesus do a parable in this way and be like, good information, Jesus, tuck that away for future reference, He's expecting something from his audience. He's expecting you to do something with it. And so in terms of applicability, that's one of the pluses about the parables of Jesus. Uh, I think when you read them in the, in the right way through peasant eyes, um, I think his original audience would hear them and be like, I got to do something different on Monday based on what I read about on Sunday for us too. So, all right. Uh, so for this series, Four Parables That Expect Something From You, how will we respond? To, to, with all of that as a backdrop, we're going to dive into the first parable that we're going to look at. It's called the parable of the two debtors. It shows up within, a, within the middle of a story um, in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read through the entire story with you and then come back and kind of circle on to some, highlight some things that are, I think, uh, potentially informational and and uh, will help you make a, a more educated decision about what to do with what you've just heard. But uh, Luke chapter 7, starting starting with verse 36 through 50, it's going to be a lot of verses on here. If you want on the app, in the notes section, if you click on the notes piece, all of it's there, including everything else that's going to be on the screen. Um, or if you have a Bible up at home, that's fine. This is the NIV version. There we go. All right. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came uh, there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner." Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher or rabbi, he said, two people, and he goes, this is when he goes into the parable. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A large sum of money, uh, a considerably, uh, a, a large sum of money and then a considerably large amount of money. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. 
So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, right? That makes the most logical sense. You have judged correctly, uh, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she went, or she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman uh, from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are three primary characters in this story. Uh, a Pharisee, who we find out later is named Simon. Uh, Jesus, obviously, and a woman who is quoted as a, a sinner who lives in the city. The scene is at a banquet at the home of the Pharisee. And when I say home, one of the contexts that would be important for you to know is that most Pharisees and wealthy people lived outside of the town of Jerusalem. They would just come in to do their work. Uh, and then uh, a lot of them would have what's called a hosting home or a like a banquet facility or a grange hall, some place to be able to host dinners like this with traveling rabbis and sages who would come into town. Uh, and they would feel a responsibility to say, uh, come to my house, let's have dinner together, let's make it a theological discussion, I'll invite all of my really smart friends, um, and we can uh, have food, I'll pay for the food, and we will, uh, as a courtesy to the public, open this up as a public, not forum, because there would be no input from anybody else, but you could come, stand along the outside and observe. So not a home with a door per se, but um, just a place, right? So that's kind of the the setting for this. Um, there would be theological, pure, ritualistic purity rituals that would be in, in place anytime that a Pharisee would eat. There'd be a, a process, a way, a way of keeping clean. Um, and if you're going to dine here, we this is the way that we do it. We don't serve this. We always serve this. And some of those things are going to go uh, undone or unnoticed, and that's going to be a critical part of the story for this. But to talk about what would have what this would have looked like and and felt like, and sort of paint the picture of the environment. I found a description of one of a custom like this in a book called Eastern Customs in Bible Lands, and it, and it kind of illustrates this this setting for us. In describing how it would look, a long low table, or more often merely the great wooden dishes, are just placed along the center of the room, and low couches on either side. Not a tall table that you would sit at. This would be something that would be like closer to the ground, and there would be some like reclining issue, you know, things that would be involved in there. Low couches on either side, on which guests place in order of their rank from the host of the home at the head of the table uh, down, you know, depending on kind of where you were at the table or how, you know, how well off you were or whatever, um, the further away you go. Um, recline, leaning on their left elbow with their feet turned away from the table. Everyone on coming in takes off their sandals or slippers and leaves them at the door, socks or stockings being really unknown at that point. Servants stand behind the couches and place a wide, shallow basin on the ground. They pour water over it on the feet of the guests. To omit this courtesy would be to imply that the visitor was one of very inferior rank, meaning, you know, we're not even going to wash your feet. Behind the servants, the loungers of the village crowd in, not are they thought obtrusive in so doing. So you, here we get this picture of this banquet that's being provided, and we know that there are things that are not taking place that should have taken place. The setting is that the feet are always placed behind, you know, this person who's leaning in because of the offensive, unclean nature 
of feet in those times. They, they would have contact with the ground. There was an unknown about what, you know, you couldn't touch a dead body. So um, ritualistically, um, was there something that I, I can control what my hands touch and my arms and whatever, but my feet, I've got to walk. And so that would kind of be this, this way of saying the most unclean part of your body is your feet. And that's not altogether even untrue in today's society too, right? Um, it's the least, uh, it's the least thing involved. Like you've never come home after a date night and be like, I can't not wait to turn off the lights, turn on a little bit of music and have you rub your feet all over me. You know what I mean? That's just like, Oh, are we, that's kind of gross. Uh, I love you, but, um, you're going to need to soak those feet if we're going to go through with that first. Right. So, um, that still holds true for us. It would also be a kind of a biblical uh, idiom of, of, um, a psalmist who's who's trying to say, in order to kind of show my enemies uh, where they stand in relation to me, I've defeated them. They are like a footstool that's now under my feet, right? I mean, this is this is putting it in its place, showing off the social dynamics at play in this. So, no water. What we know, based on Jesus's kind of comments, are no water is provided for his feet, no anointing oil for his head. Typically, usually olive oil. They would come and say, "This is a relaxing moment. Slick back your hair, enjoy yourself." I mean, it's kind of weird. I don't want to go to your house and get olive oil in my head, but they did for whatever reason. And no welcoming kiss, which I know that's not a part of our culture, but it's not far off for us to see either a French culture or British culture where, you know, kiss on the cheek to people as, as kind of a sign of an acquaintance or somebody that we know or a friend or whatever, a loved one um, is, is, uh, is kind of an appropriate way of, of doing things. In our culture, it's not, it's not kind of normal, but for us, we've replaced it with sort of a handshake. And this would be the equivalent of somebody coming up and saying, hey, how's it going, man? Great to see you. And then the response is, no, the handshake is clearly not offered. The hands are in the pockets. Good, man. Good to see you too. And you're like, oh, I get it. So this is how it's going to be, right? You know in that moment, something's off in that way. So that's what's taking place here. This is a marked sign of contempt. Or at the very least, and maybe this is, I mean, more likely, what is being done here is a communication, albeit unsaid, but definitely felt, that just so you know, Rabbi, we are not equals, you are not on the same playing field as I am, right? Um, that that um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of set the tone for you and let you know, like I can, I have questions about you. I can respect the fact that you're, you have the ability to draw a crowd and you seem to be a, like a competent teacher, but um, we are not equals in this way. These would be what you had, have seen here are in, in the first century through peasant eyes. What are they seeing? They're seeing glaring omissions. No water for the feet, no anointing oil, and, and no kiss uh, upon welcome. For a first century reader, these are not things that are merely, merely overlooked. They have been callously omitted by a judgmental host. This host in this moment is coming across, across as very calculating. And what I mean by that is, have you ever met a calculating individual? right? Somebody who does things and you think it's just a, like, oh, that's just an accident. They just, they just forgot. And then you realize, no, they thought through this. They're like three steps ahead. It's not that they forgot to get you something for your birthday. They're holding a grudge on you because you didn't get, they didn't, you know, what they didn't, you didn't get them something for a birthday a, a while back or, or something was said or just a very calc. There's people who think through things on a deeper level and take things uh, the, like a lot further than, than normal people would be like, oh, that's whatever. And, and if you're so innocent and if you're the kind of person you're like, oh, I don't like that. I can't even imagine being that kind of a person, somebody who's calculating on all different kinds of things. I have great news for you. Maybe not so great news, but I have news for you. You're going to marry somebody like this. These people find each other and they marry each other, right? In every relationship, there's one person who's like super innocent and there's one person who's fairly calculating. And you know who you are. And if you're sitting next to them right now, you can just give them a little nudge and nook and be like, 
he's not wrong. Like, we know who he is. We know who we are. It's clearly you. Anyways, this is how it works. Everything is intentional in this way. And there's always plausible deniability. That's the thing about calculating people. Whenever they're called on it, they can all, they are, there's always a reason. Oh yeah, we ran out of water. Oh yeah, olive oil was just not in the market this week or whatever. There's always some sort of a plausible deniability uh, with this. So that's the setting. Uh, and then Luke recounts for us, behold, he mentions this, behold a sinner, uh, behold a woman, a sinner applying her trade in the city. Specific mention is, is made of her being from the city. Um, because, and that's important because she's not a foreigner. Um, this is not a very big community. Uh, it, Jerusalem at that time would be much smaller than the Tri-Cities. And you know, if you go to Costco, you see somebody you know every single time, right? Tri-Cities is not that big, guys. Um, and if you've ever burned a relationship, it's amazing. Who who knows? I know the person that knows that person. And, and it's just, it gets around and it's small or whatever. And this is even smaller than that. Simon knows, based on this, perfectly well who she is. Uh, her, you know, his backstory, history, and she probably knows who he is too, right? I mean, that's kind of how those things work. Um what we find out is when she learned he was dining at the Pharisee's home, because this kind of thing would have gotten out, she brought her perfume and standing behind him began to wet his feet with her tears. And I, I, I really, um, it, Luke is intentional about trying to say all of the things that were absent and omitted from the hospitality of the uh, host are made up for in the woman who, you know, he wasn't kissed upon greeting. She kisses his feet. He, his feet weren't washed. He begins to wet his feet with her tears. Um, and he wasn't provided an anointing oil and she provides the oil. I mean, all, there's, a, there's a matching up of what, what's taking place. And, and I think it's important to realize in this moment, her washing of the feet is not premeditated. I, I don't think it was because she's got nothing to, with which to dry um, his feet and she's obliged to use her hair, which means to let down her hair. And that would have been a big thing, a big no-no in that culture. I, I really think that what we see in her response is her reacting to the inhospitality of the host. That she's seen this, that she didn't come thinking, I'm going to go do this. My strategy is I'll find Jesus, I'll get right behind him, and then I'm going to go do this. I think she showed up probably just wanting to hear and just, I'm intrigued. He, she had seen Jesus. There, there's there's probably there, there's enough evidence to make me think that they had had some sort of an interaction before this moment, that she shows up and... Uh, and uh, then she was probably in the crowd listening to him talk that day or something like that, but she's reacting. She's reacting to what she has seen as a, as a show of inhospitality, a showing of being snubbed and her realizing you can't snub Jesus. Like you can't do this. Almost as if she's picking up what, he, what this host was unwilling to provide. Like she's saying, this is not who we are. This is not, please don't let him be representative of our city and of our people. Let me do something differently, right? Um, and she, she, yes, she brings her perfume and, and there's a, a way in which to read it and says she came planning with this alabaster jar to be able to, to wash his feet with perfume. But it also mentions uh, her being like the kind of work that she does. And her perfume Listen, when you were working as a prostitute in a city of that size and of that era, um, having a jar of perfume hanging around your neck is like likely a work write-off. You know what I mean? Like that's how, um, and I, know, I, I don't mean to be crass here, but like I'm, I'm reading, as you're reading this, and it's interesting to read some of the commentators talk about um, this 
being a part of it because many of them come from far more conservative. They, you know, their faces blush when they're writing about something that's probably, but one of them said, it doesn't take much imagination to understand how important such a flask would be to a prostitute. This would be something that they would do to kind of market or to survive gross men who smell terrible and be like, Hey, why don't you pour a little bit of this on? This is going to help. You know what I mean? Like uh, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a, it's a, it's a factor in this deal. I think she showed up just because this is what she always had on her, right? The local leader had invited a brilliant new rabbi into his home and then proceeded to violate every rule of hospitality and she's not willing to stand by and just watch this thing happen. The insult to Jesus has to feel intentional and it electrifies the room. War has almost been declared. And I think everybody is sitting there going, that like the, you could cut the tension with a knife. Everybody's watching to see what Jesus will do. The handshake has been kind of undone. The, 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 the water's not there. The kiss isn't made. Uh, the anointing oil is not provided. All of these kind of things. And everybody's going, what's Jesus gonna do in this moment? And everybody would give him all of the freedom to be able to be like, you know what? I can tell when I'm not wanted anywhere. And I, you know, I'll leave and, and have bad words and pronounce cursings on him as he leaves. And Jesus doesn't. He just kind of like, seemingly takes it and and just kind of okay fine he he keeps his mouth shut when he had every opportunity to do something different and a foreshadowing of things to come one of the things that would be said of jesus especially when he's being arrested and crucified and unjustly and all that kind of stuff he opened not his mouth against injustice and this is just one more example of it she knows she's not worthy to anoint his head or kiss his cheek, right? Um, not only would this be inappropriate for a woman in general, but a woman of her stature uh, too. So she settles for the least uh, possible thing, which is his feet. She's trying to compensate for the insult that Jesus has just received. And loosening her hair would have been a provocative gesture. Then as now in the Middle East, um, uh, women keep their head covered or their hair covered, uh, except for their husband or a family member or such. And so as soon as she you know, let's go it all. And it begins to drape out. Everybody's probably, who knows who she is going, oh, here we go. Here we look at her go. Jeez, oh, Pete. Um, the entire dramatic action is carried out without any language. There's no record of any word being spoken from her to him, just emotion, pure emotion. And for Simon, the calculated snub of the rabbi is not proceeding according to plan. He had, He's a very calculated individual. He's like, I know I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Then Jesus is going to say something and it's going to be a ruckus and Everybody will see my side of things. And instead, Jesus stays silent. He didn't see that coming. And then what also he didn't see coming is somebody taking, you know, filling in his required or, or um, expected hospitality in this way, especially a woman like her. Um, this would have been a tough, a tough thing for him to kind of go off of. And then he had some options here. He could, he could uh, kind of wake up to the reality that he's been kind of a turd and, and realizing I'm going to need to take a little bit more humble approach. My apologies, Jesus. I should have absolutely provided you for those things. I see now she's doing this. Let me, let me stop. Like, let me, let's do this right. I can make this right. But instead he doesn't. Instead his mind drifts and he begins to think of something. And in his own brain, he says to himself, he makes these judgment character or judgment, uh, judgmental thoughts about this woman. This Pharisee is mentioned first in response. And all he sees is an immoral woman who has just let down her hair publicly and who is by her touch, defiling one of the guests, a guest who's not perceptive enough to know what is even going on with this. Is he so oblivious to this? Does he not know who she is? I think he does. I thought that she was around. I mean, like, but does he know what's transpiring here? Is he whatever? What's noteworthy here is Simon's indifference to her restoration, his indifference to her restoration. Jesus would go on and say, she, look at her actions. She must have been forgiven so much. She's operating out of a deep well of love and of, of grace. She obviously has been forgiven much and he just doesn't care about her. 
Simon doesn't care about her as an individual. He cares about the indecency of the moment and the indecency of what's taking place in this way. In this way. One rabbi uh, said this, perhaps the reason that Jesus accepted the invitation in the first place to go to Simon's house. He goes in the hope of Simon's acceptance of her repentance. Perhaps he wanted to go there to see if Simon would respond positively to give him a chance to see what she's doing. If Simon and his other religious friends do not accept the authenticity of her repentance, no restoration of the community will take place. Again, small town, everybody knows everybody, right? The goal would be there's repentance and that she would be reintegrated and uh, reconciled back into community. But if Simon and his friends are unwilling to see this, if all they see is, the, you know, can her continue, look at this uh, woman, a sinner still, right? Uh, there would be no restoration. There would be no reconciliation in this way. Here's, I think, why we have this parallel. I wrote this out because I think this is important. I want to read it word for word because it was carefully scripted. The purpose of the parable, why do we have a parable that we're about to go into? And the dialogue that follows beforehand and after is to break the attitudes towards sinners and righteous that were dominant in that society and that continue to be dominant in our society, right? Religious organizations, the church, capital C church, our church, Christians in general, people in general though, come on. We categorize people into us versus them. We categorize people into righteous versus not righteous, sinners and saints, all that kind of stuff, right? These these categories, he was challenging this and to make it possible for this woman to be reconciled back into a loving, caring, and accepting community. Why is this parable here? Why is this story there? Why did Jesus show up? Why did he respond the way that he did? He's doing this to help Simon and other people in religious positions learn the shortcomings of attitudes that they have towards categorizing people in sinners and righteous categories and refusing to engage engage in reconciliation. If if you're not going to provide a pathway for people to get back into community, don't be surprised when they don't repent. If you're not going to make it easy and possible for them to get life back to normal, and yet you're seriously harping against sin and, and, and all these kinds of things, don't be surprised when, why would I confess? Why would I change anything about myself? There's no way back in. He's challenging this sort of thing. This is an, an entire story to be able to kind of go this. So this is why Jesus, I think, then turns and says to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. I have something to say to you. And I, I, I think it's like one of those spots where um, as, a, as, a, as a parent, you had to sit down your kids and you're like, I'm going to tell you something right now, right? And your code that you're trying to communicate is, you're not going to like what I have to tell you. You know what I mean? Like, this is going to be a tough conversation. That's, uh, I remember I talked to somebody who was in HR, somebody who used to attend this church and he was in HR and he would, anytime that there was a firing that was about to take place, because, you know, most of them would know what's going to come in. He would sit him down and be like, as kind as he could, because he's got the crappy job of firing people. Hey, we're about to have a conversation. You're probably not going to like me after we have this conversation. You're not going to like what I have to say, but we had to have it. Tomorrow's going to be your last day or today's going to be your last day, right? I mean, this is, this is one of those spots. Jesus says, uh, all right, Simon, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there were two people who owed money to a certain money lender. Two people or two debtors are leveled in their need and neither is available to pay. Yes, they're two different sums of money, but both of them feel insurmountable. Both of them are unable to kind of cover their costs Both of them have no other options. The same grace is extended to each, 100% forgiveness of their debt. That doesn't mean that the amounts are the same, but the, uh, the, you know, 
uh, ratio or whatever are, are the same. Uh, and it's interesting, in, in Aramaic, the same word means both debt and sin. Aramaic is the language that would be spoken by Jesus at that time. They would write in Greek, but they would speak in Aramaic, the market language of the day. Um, and in speaking, debt and sin, the word that is used there are both interchangeable, which is why when you read um, uh, or have recited the Lord's Prayer, there are some translations that would say, uh, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. In other translations, you would say, Father, forgive us our sins uh, as we uh, as you forgive us, uh, yeah, as you as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And so interchangeable sort of things in this way. Jesus is using this wordplay here to compare and contrast a sinful woman with her sin and Simon, who is socially in debt and has failed to love. You are also in sin, Simon. Do you understand? I mean, they're different, but that's still, you're in debt. She's in debt, I'm you're in debt. And both have, uh, and you failed to, you as a result have failed to love. Now, then he goes to the story, he says two people, have, they were both repaid. Um, now, which of them will love the money lender more? Verse 42 and 43. Which of them will love this money lender more? Seeing he's being trapped in a corner, probably kind of putting the pieces together and realizing um, that Jesus has him in a spot. Simon's feeble reply is, well, I suppose the one with the greater debt, which makes sense. Then Jesus begins to list off all of the things. You, you, you've, you've looked at this woman and in your mind, you've created a category uh, that she exists in and, and will continue to exist in no matter what she does, the category of sinner. But let me tell you, you have your own debts. You have your own sin that you live into. I showed up and you didn't provide any water for my feet. You would do this for somebody beneath you. I mean, like, this, is, uh, this was a noticeable, a, a noticeable omission. You I failed to provide anointing oil. You you never even gave me a kiss to welcome me. Like all of these things, everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. And in a Middle Eastern world dominated almost exclusively by men, the woman is made the moral exemplar in this story. The woman who is a woman of the city who plies her trade in the city, who has to wear an alabaster perfume thing on her uh, on her on her neck um, to get her to get work. I mean, this is amazing. And sh- and Jesus would say. Better to be like this woman here. People would be like, what are you What are you talking about? Such dramatic scenes were and are proof and a, a profound statement about the worth of women in a male-dominated society that Jesus came to flip the script on this in a big way. And irrespective of what is set before him, the guest is expected in these moments to say again and again, I am so worthy of the, of the hospitality extended to us, but Jesus refuses to play this game, Right? The expectation, the calculation that is going on in the mind of Simon is, I'm going to lowball this guy and out of obligation, he's going to have to be like, oh, it's okay. I'm, I'm fine. Everything's good. And this is what we do to our kids when we send them over to a friend's house and we'd be like, you're going to eat whatever it is that they serve you. And they're like, well, what if they serve me peanut butter and jelly? I don't eat peanut butter and jelly. You're going to eat it. You're going to love it too. You're going to say, this is the most peanut butter and jelly I've ever had. Recite it back to me. Say what you're going to say, right? We do this. We practice this with our kids. These are the social things that we try and raise them up into being good social creatures, right? And Jesus doesn't play this game. He calls him on it. I have something to tell you and you're not gonna like what I have to say. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, you may have not caught that in the very first part of the reading because I didn't for sure. And I love it so much. He looks at the woman, but continues to talk to Simon. I'm trying to draw your, uh, Simon, whenever somebody is talking and they look at something and they begin to, but you know that they're talking to you, your inclination is to do what? to shift your eyes to the object of the attention of the speaker. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you something, but I don't want you to look at me as I'm telling you this. I want you to look at her. So he looks at her and he talks to Simon. And he says this, he doesn't 
forgive her sins on the spot. I think he rather announces the forgiveness that has already taken place for her. There's, there's a way in which, you know, he's going to be accused in a second of who's this guy that even forgives sins. But if you really read what he's trying to say and the kind of the way that it, the grammar of the th- whole thing works out, he's basically saying, for this reason, I tell you, her sins, her many sins must have been forgiving her. After all, she would not have gone to show such a great love in such a way. Like her dramatic representation, her dramatic efforts mean that she has gone through so incredibly much. Do you see this, Simon? Are you seeing the transformation in her, or do you just continue to see her as this object in a category that you've labeled as sinner? I'm inviting you to see her differently and to invite her back into restoration of community. Verse 47, he says this, and this is the dagger, man. This is the, oh man, he really sticks it to Simon here. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And you know at that point, Simon knows it too, He's not talking about the woman. He's talking about you, Simon. He looks at her and he says, look at how, look at in the way that she responds with love. She reflects grace because she knows what so deeply she's been given. But somebody who has responded with so little love probably doesn't think that they've been forgiven much and have not received all that much grace probably because they don't think that there's much wrong with them. Simon, that's you, but we've just recounted all of the things that you've done. You just live in this state of unawareness of how much grace you've actually received that I chose not to speak up when I could have. You've chosen to not see this person for who she is, but continue to put her in this category and made it impossible for her and more importantly, people like her for a long time to re-engage back in community because you just would rather put people back in categories. And that is a reflection of you not really truly understanding the grace that you have received. You have been forgiven or seem, you think you've been forgiven so little and naturally that leads you to love little. The most damaging criticism at all is the fact that Simon witnessed this woman's dramatic action and still labeled her a sinner and put her in the category of this. Then other guests begin to say amongst themselves, verse 49, who is this for who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's where the story ends and Luke goes on to the next thing. We're not told exactly how Simon responds to this. The final response is he see things, does he realize in that moment, gosh, I, I am, I, I, I'm pretty shallow. I'm pretty uh, I love too little, and it's probably because I don't realize the grace that I've received. Will he reevaluate the nature of his own indebtedness, repent, and offer expressions of grateful love that has so far been lacking? Or will his hostility and opposition continue to harden? What's he going to do? And that is where now we, as the reader and the listener, must complete the parable in his or own, own response. I mean, he leaves the ball in the court of, of Simon as, as an audience member, but he's also doing this as Luke reminds us, in a crowd, in, in a setting, who are processing through this. And he's kind of leaving it up to them too. What are you going to do with this? How are you going to respond to her? Are you going to welcome her back in? Or are you going to continue to put her in this category? Are you going to offer grace and love greatly because you've been forgiven greatly? Or love a little because you've only been forgiven a little? It's a relevant question for them and it's relevant for us too. What kind of a person are we going to be? How are we going to do this? To what depth of understanding have, are we at to realize the brokenness by which we continue to receive grace without even realizing how much we have? 
one of the beauties about marriage, and as I read it recently by somebody, and I can't recall who it was, otherwise I'd give it credit for it, but is that marriage is created as the, God's most efficient surveillance program ever to keep track of us and sharpen us and make us, we become better people because we have to live with somebody who knows everything about us. You know what I mean? And, and that's, that is kind of one of those things that the goal of marriage is to kind of challenge us to have somebody that we love so much that they can speak to us and be like, hey, when you act like that, you may not realize it, but you're a big fat jerk. And so we're trying to rub the rough edges off of it to learn to love a lot more because people love us in spite of us. And ultimately, we have been forgiven greatly. We don't even truly understand the unmerited grace of a heavenly father who loves us unconditionally, who calls us then to reflect that, that you know, people know your disciples by the way that you love one another, the way that you choose to love one another, that you are called to love greatly because you've been forgiven greatly, because you've been, you've experienced grace greatly. So we stand like Simon. Jesus challenges, will you stop people putting, putting people in their categories? Will you stop labeling things? Will you stop making it harder for people to repent? Will you invite them back into community upon repentance? Will you recognize that what that's gonna take is for me to love greatly? And the only way to do that effectively is to realize and to recognize how much you have loved me in the first place. So that's the invitation. May we be a church that is actively trying to re-engage people back in the community. And may we individually take this as a mission. And we, may we be the church in our community to do this in our families, in our circles of influence, in our workplaces, in our marriages, with our kids, with our friends, with people we don't even perhaps know. So that's our challenge. Let's pray. Father, help us to, as we read through this parable, see through peasant eyes what was actually taking place and what the original audience would have been kind of processing through. And may we begin to figure out how that applies for us too. And we, we, we go through the grid and we think through uh, the fact that maybe perhaps the reason that we love so little and are so have such a short fuse sometimes is because we just don't think that there's much wrong with us. And that's deep down. We know that that's not true. We know we're more broken than we'd like to admit. And so I pray that you would help us to understand grace and reflect it and be that individually and corporately together. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like, courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.